Today's episode of This Week I Learned is brought to you by the 400 horsepower Lincoln MKZ with a Revel audio sound system that gives you audiophile quality sound no matter where you sit in the vehicle. Hello and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This week I learned why it's time to embrace the spoiler. What'd you think of the season finale of Game of Thrones? <gasps> right? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm reading the books. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. first book. And he reads slow. Hey. <laughs> we can never talk about it. The spoiler alert has become as ubiquitous as death is on Game of Thrones. So long as I am your king, treason shall never go unpunished. Sir Illyn, bring me his head. The vast majority of people believe that knowing the ending of a story, episode, series, what have you, ruins the experience. And intuitively, this totally makes sense. Killing the surprise should make a narrative less enjoyable, right? Wrong. At least that's according to new research out of UC San Diego. Psychology researchers conducted a few experiments that put spoilers to the test. In one experiment, volunteers read short stories from a variety of genres. One group just had to read the story and then rate their enjoyment of it when they finished. The other group did the same, except their stories included an introduction, which appeared to accidentally spoil the ending. And curiously, researchers found that the spoiled readers enjoyed their stories more than those whose ending was left to surprise. Surprised themselves, researchers repeated the experiment with three different genres. There was the mystery with a whodunit moment. There was the ironic story with a surprise ending that crystallizes the whole thing. And there was literary fiction with a tidy resolution at the end. And once again, across all three genres, the spoilers proved to enhance the experience of reading the tale. So researchers conducted a follow-up study just to make sure. This time, they were interested in finding out how and when spoilers work to enhance a story. So instead of letting readers finish the story, researchers stopped people before they reached the spoiled ending and asked them how much they were enjoying the story. If the benefit of spoilers comes from simply knowing the ending, you would not expect to see any increased enjoyment when interrupted in the middle of a story. But it turns out even halfway through, readers enjoyed the spoiled story more than non-spoiled readers. What researchers think is going on is that spoilers open up space in our brain, allowing us to stop worrying about who's gonna die so we can better concentrate and incorporate all the details and plot points until we get to that inevitable end. And in great works of literature and storytelling, spoilers abound. It's not like we don't know the ending to Romeo and Juliet, or that the boy gets the girl in every romantic comedy, or that your favorite character is definitely going to die on Game of Thrones. And yet we still read and we still watch. It's probably why we have favorite movies we recite from heart. Knowing the ending to those beloved tales allows us to enjoy the cleverness and artistry on deeper levels again and again. The lead researcher from the study actually had a really nice analogy for this. 
If you're driving up Highway 1 in California going through Big Sur and you know the road really well, you can peek around and admire the awesome view. But if it's your first time, then you have to focus on those nasty twists and turns. So, dear friends, don't fear the spoilers. Kevin Spacey is Kaiser Soze, Bruce Willis is dead. I see dead people. Oh, come on, these are terribly old ones. Now, just go enjoy the movies. This week I learned that parents definitely have a gender bias when it comes to their kids. A new study published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology suggests that mothers tend to favor daughters and fathers tend to favor sons. Researchers conducted four different experiments on volunteers across cultures who had a child of each gender to see if gender bias played a role in financial decisions. In one experiment, the participants were told they would receive a treasury bond of 25 bucks for just one of their two kids, and they had to choose who would get it. The majority of Anglo mothers chose to give the bond to their daughters, and the fathers chose their sons. When the experiment was tested on parents from India, the results were the same. In another experiment, parents had to decide who would receive more in the family will, and the results here were the same once again. In yet another experiment, parents had to decide whether to enter a raffle for a girl's backpack or a boy's backpack. And you guessed it, the results were the same. Mothers chose the girl's backpack 75% of the time, and dads picked the boy's backpack 87% of the time. The reason, it's simple really. Mothers and fathers unwittingly favor the child of their gender because they see themselves in those kids. Now, it's interesting when you consider the consequences. Depending on who in the family controls the purse strings, then one sibling could very much be likely to benefit more than the other. And it gets even more interesting when you consider how this gender bias could extend outside the family. Researchers say that when teams and businesses are led by a man, the men may be more likely to benefit. And the same would be true of a female boss and her female employees. The good news is this kind of behavior isn't written in stone. The more mothers, fathers, men, and women can recognize it in themselves, the better able they are to correct the behavior going forward. This week I learned the psychology behind why clowns creep us out so very much. You ever been to the circus? Well, when I was a kid. Did you like it? Uh, well, you know, it was fun. I was kind of scared of the clowns. Are you still scared of clowns? Yeah. There are plenty of studies pointing out the fact that we're completely freaked out by clowns. One 2008 study found that very few kids actually like clowns and that decorating children's wards of hospitals with pictures of clowns actually creates the opposite of a nurturing environment. But psychologist Frank McAndrew wanted to figure out why we find clowns so very disturbing. And his study on the nature of creepiness, published in the journal New Ideas of Psychology, provides some revealing insights. But first, a brief history of the clown's creepy evolution. 
Clowns of some sort have been around for centuries. Court jesters provided satirical relief to royalty and other heads of state. Shakespeare was the first to use the word clown sometime in the 1500s to describe a foolish character in several of his plays. But the clown as we know it today, with the white face, wide grin, big hair, and baggy clothing, well, he didn't arrive until the 19th century. But he's pretty much stayed the same ever since. Now, the persona of the creepy clown didn't emerge until the 1970s, when serial killer John Wayne Gacy was convicted of killing at least 33 people. Gacy is a 36-year-old building contractor who reportedly dressed like a clown to entertain at children's parties. Prosecutors say he once went to prison for a sex offense in Iowa. In addition to his side hustle as a clown, Gacy also likes spending his time painting portraits of clowns. This was both before and during his time in jail. And with that bit of horrifying news, the connection between clowns and dangerous psychopathic behavior was forever connected in the minds of the public. Of course, it didn't help that Hollywood exploited this newfound fear of ours. Hi, Georgie. Aren't you going to say hello? Oh, come on, bucko. Don't you want a balloon? But it's not Hollywood's influence that explains why clowns can send chills down our spines. It's actually their ambiguity that sets us on edge. As psychologist Frank McAndrew found in his study, ambiguity is indeed at the heart of creepiness. In the study, McAndrew had more than 1,300 people fill out an online survey that attempted to track the traits and characteristics that elicit this spine-chilling unease. And the results showed that unpredictability is an important component of creepiness, along with other characteristics like unusual patterns of eye contact and other abnormal, nonverbal behaviors. And clowns are nothing if not unpredictable. They have these wide permagrins hiding any true emotion. Their baggy clothes conceal any descriptive identity. And their behavior is scripted to be erratic. They'll offer you a flower to smell, only to squirt you with water. They'll offer you a pie to eat, only to throw it in your face. The good news is that our response to that uncertainty, the creep factor, may be evolutionary and saving us from certain death. Those chills down our spine put us on edge just enough so that if things get too weird, we can run before we're pulled down into a drain. You want it, don't you, Georgie? Oh, of course you do. And there's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And balloons, too. All colors. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float This week I learned that stress lowers our ability to sense new dangers. These findings are actually quite revelatory, considering the fact that the conventional view is that stress enhances our ability to detect and adjust to sources of threat. But researchers out of New York University and Peking University in China found that may not be the case. Sensing dangers and being able to predict them is critical to our survival. 
but there's a certain amount of flexibility required in stressful and dangerous situations. If an event triggers a stressful situation, let's say a car stops short suddenly when you have the right to cross, well, you also want to be flexible enough to keep an eye out for the rogue bike messenger or the out-of-control kid on a scooter on the sidewalk to avoid a second collision. So to test this flexibility response, researchers recruited volunteers who underwent Pavlovian threat conditioning. Basically, people viewed images on a computer screen. Some images were paired with a mild electric wrist shock, which served as the threat cue. But then some images weren't paired with anything at all, and this absence of a shock acted as the safe cue. The next day, half the participants had to dunk their arm in an ice water bath for a few minutes. This was meant to induce stress because the cold water bath elevates two known stress hormones. Then the group repeated the same threat conditioning procedure, but this time with a twist. The images that were safe the day before were now paired with the shock, and the images that had the threat cue were now safe. And researchers found that the water-dunked stress group was less likely to change their response to the new threat. Meanwhile, the control group was more likely to respond and learn which was a new threat and which images were now safe. Researchers found that people under stress have basically a learning deficit, a slower response to learning and updating the threat cues and safety cues, which means that while stress may heighten our environmental awareness to some degree, it impairs our very critical ability to respond to changing threats on the fly. And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you'd like to read more about any of the facts I've mentioned, you can head on over to theweek.com slash podcasts, where you'll also find our 7-Minute Opinions and 7-Minute Explainer series. And if you've come across any scientific tidbits, mind-blowing studies, or historical revelations that you'd like to share, email me. You can reach me at podcast at theweek.com. Just put podcast in the subject. And until next week, I'm Lauren Hansen, and thank you so much for listening.